Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Ian Muneshwar, an Indo-Guyanese writer with work in Clark's World, The Dark, Podcastle, and much more. Welcome to the show, Ian. Hi, Jen. First question as always, tell us about yourself and your work. Sure. So I'm my name is Ian Muneshwar. Um, I am, as uh, Jen said, Indo-Guyanese and a queer writer of short fiction. Um, I'm also currently a graduate student um, and a teacher. I'm based in uh, Raleigh at the moment, uh, doing an MFA in fiction at North Carolina State University. I'm particularly interested in uh, linguistics, uh, in music. I'm a, a lapsed violinist and oboist. In queer culture, especially in drag culture, um, and in food, I absolutely love uh, cooking and all things food-related. So a lot of that um, kind of continues cropping up in my short fiction. And uh, I'm also interested in exploring the uh, intersections of um, my particular identities. Um, so I'm interested in the uh, legacy of colonialism as I kind of use fiction to explore my family's past um, and uh, history that I'm uh, often not as connected to as I would like to be. Um, and I also use fiction to kind of explore the the difficult intersections of uh, queer identities as much as I can. Awesome. So that's really my first question, because I'm going to admit to my awful white U.S. centrism here, which is never a good look, but <laughs> <laughs> I did not know about the colonial history of Indo-Guyanese immigration and diaspora. So could you talk a little bit more about that history and, you know, specifically, you kind of mentioned it, but how it plays into your work. And I think you just posted one of your stories uh, that kind of uh, hits on this, which is skin smooth as plantain, heart soft as mango. So could you talk about that in relation to your Indo-Guyanese culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it, it, and it is a, it's a difficult, it's a, strange little corner of colonial history that I feel like is in a blind spot for um, a lot of America. Um, um, And so I'm, and honestly has been a a blind spot for me as well, because it's not something that my uh, family is really forthright in talking about. Um, So for me, um, fiction or short fiction has been a way of um, exploring this past um, that I I want to know more about myself. Um, so for my family, it's been a series of like, uh, forced diasporas. First, my, my great grandfather was born in India, but, um, was taken, uh, essentially as like an indentured servant to, uh, Guyana to work, um, uh, in, uh, sugar and cane harvesting. And then my father, 
immigrated to America in the um, or in the mid 70s uh, when he was a teenager. So it's because of these constant dislocations and this constant diaspora, the sort of our cultural memory is always always being like cauterized and cut short, and we we um, lose the history that came before. And that, that can be a difficult thing. And that's something that I try to, I think about, um, a lot. I have a story in Podcastle, um, that, that for which that is kind of the, the center of the story. Oh gosh, I think I've lost track of the rest of your question. <laughs> I was going to say, talk about it in terms of, uh, skin smooth as plantain, but like, as you say, your story in Podcastle, I think the one you're referring to is Rabana's children, in which you explore two positions in that history, both from a modern day perspective, the child of an immigrant from Guyana, and then his mother. Right. Yeah. So in that story, I'm following um, two generations of uh, Guyanese people, a mother and son, um, as they uh, both interact with this um, demon from uh, Hindu mythology, uh, Ravana, and, um, and how their lives are kind of uh, altered by him, and the, the the figure of Ravana is someone who I'm I'm trying to use to think about the those dislocations. He's someone with you know his basis in in India in Hindu religion, um, but who has followed these people uh, first to Guyana and then to Queens, um, and is and is uh, distanced from his people more and more as he continues doing that. Um, so that story just thinks about how, or I'm trying to think about how um, cultural memory is is uh, shifted. Um, and, uh, dislocated over and over again, um, in ways that, uh, make it really difficult to, to form a solid identity. Um, and I, I think that's something I try to think about in, in all of my fiction, um, especially in Skins, uh, Skins with his plantain heart, soft as mango, is how do we negotiate identity? How do we, um, how do we figure out who we are when we don't even know you know, who our ancestors were, um, when we can't even look back a generation or two generations and, um, and really know what happened to those people. Yeah. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to do in, in a lot of my fiction. Sorry. I feel, I feel like I've steered you away from the horror part of this. No, not <laughs> at all. I haven't even really touched on the horror part yet. So that was going to be my next question, which is why horror specifically? Why is it the genre that you feel is best allowing you to explore that cultural disconnect and ideas of cultural memory and identity? That's a fabulous question. Um, and something I've, I've been thinking about a lot more as I, because it wasn't like I, I knew horror or dark fiction or weird fiction was like going to be my genre of choice when I sat down to write. It's something that just kind of happened as I kept writing. Um, and all of a sudden I saw my, my publications started being in magazines that were more dark fiction and excuse me, horror centered. Um, I think if to get a little bit theoretical for a minute, um, I, I think what horror as a genre is capable of, of letting the writer do is, um, centering, uh, a question that compels the reader to keep reading. But it's a question that's ultimately um, unknowable or unanswerable in some way. And uh, what what a really good horror fiction does is that it pushes the reader as far as it can um, into that uncertainty, into that place of unknowing. Um, and I think that's particularly interesting or um, a particularly good tool for me to use to explore my own fiction. Um, as I think about, as as most of what I'm thinking about is 
um, the the legacy of colonialism, the impact of colonialism on on my family, and then the ways in which we try to navigate identity given the impact of colonialism. Um, th- these are all questions that I don't think I am going to be capable of fully answering myself. Um, and certainly, I, I mean, something that I imagine most of my readers will struggle with with trying to figure out. So horror lends itself to doing that because it's a genre in which uh, the unknowable, the uncanny and the uncertain are all um, centered. It's, it's, you know, the heart of horror is is the unknowable. So you mentioned when you were talking about yourself and kind of the things that you you love and like to explore a couple of things. So we're just going to start with the first one that sprang to my mind, linguistics. How how do you explore linguistics in your fiction? Um, so this for me is actually connected to music. Um, there are a couple of different valences to this. So um, I guess the most obvious one is that I am obsessed with the way not only the way like sentences are put together but like the the way words sound and how the sounds that words make create images for the reader um and i am uh so my (laughs) so much of my work is done at the level of the line um i i just keep playing with words i keep playing with different syntactic structures um as i try to figure out what works best in order to create the intended effect for the reader and so so linguistics is interesting for me, uh, in that sense, I'm also I've uh, done a little bit of of like, like graduate level linguistics in this MFA program. Certainly not enough to qualify me as having any kind of expertise in in the subject. Um, but I I am also interested in um, some of the more uh, theoretical questions of of linguistics. I have a story in uh, liminal stories called the Falling Game um, that deals with just the in the insufficiency of language, like language's inability to convey the things we actually want it to convey. Um, and that's something that also interests me as a writer is, you know, how, <laughs> to what point are words actually effective? So this kind of brought up something that Darcy Little Badger was talking about in terms of her work, which is that she has the story that is specifically about losing a connection to language and forgetting culturally forgetting parts of language. So I'm curious how linguistics and sentence structure plays into what you were talking about in terms of losing cultural memory as well. That's a, yeah, that is a fabulous question. Um, in, and I would actually be really interested in talking to Darcy about that. So in skins, something I struggled with a great deal was that there are, um, there are like there's one or two characters who um, speak with a, a bit of an accent and it, and it's more than just an accent. Um, it's also the the way they structure sentences is um, just different from from quote unquote standard American English. Um, and uh, I did hours. It's only like two sentences in the story, but I did hours and hours and hours of research trying to get that right. And as I was doing the research, I felt stupid because I, you know, this is the way people in my family speak and I should know this. And yet because of these dislocations, because these are family members who I haven't seen often and haven't spoken to for, you know, years at a time, um, I, I don't have access to that, um, to those dialectical patterns anymore. Um, and it was infuriating as I was writing this piece 
you know, to be going back to like YouTube to be like, okay, would they use, you know, the direct object pronoun here or would they put it over here? Um, when I am thinking to myself, you know, I should, I should remember this. I should still have this. And I think, I think that's something that you're going to see in, um, really any culture that's been colonized and has been asked to move across the globe is that the, you lose that connection to the to the most basic things to the things that you know make your culture your own things like language um and so i mean part of writing i guess is an attempt at a reclamation of that it's it's an attempt to to take that back um but i mean i don't know how much reclamation was actually happening in, in skins there because it's it's uh, i only have a few lines that are not in you know, standard American English. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but that that's a, it's a great question. That's something I was thinking about constantly. Thank you. Um, absolutely. The last part of your identity, other than food, because food clearly plays a great, a big part in both of the stories that I read, your queer identity in terms of, in relation to both writing horror and your cultural history, how does that work into things? into what you're exploring. Yeah, um, interesting. So I, I actually have a story um, out last month in Gamut uh, magazine um, called Hidden in Skin. That's a um, kind of like my homage to both uh, Clive Barker and Betty Davis. Um, it's a story about um, two uh, magical drag queens who are um, uh, uh, pitted against each other in a sort of battle of wills and wits. Um, and, uh, that's the first, um, like really blatantly, uh, queer story I've had where I try to go into, uh, drag culture, um, a great deal. But, um, honestly, a lot of my queer fiction, um, I have a lot of difficulty placing. Um, I don't, I, I've really hidden in skin is the, the main one that is currently out there for people to read. Um, but like, I think there is a, a parallel between, if we're not talking about my published fiction, just in terms of the fiction that I write for myself, um, there's definitely a parallel between the ways in which I try to navigate my, um, identity as a child of diaspora, as an Indo-Guyanese person, um, and as a, a queer person. I think part of, um, part of queer identity is the sort of constant, um, putting together your own identity from all of the the dislocations of, you know, being, being raised in the closet of being asked to come out. And then when you're asked to come out of having to deal with all of the um, difficulty of being an openly queer person. And I think that's uh, part of what the culture of drag um, is so wonderful at is that not only, not only can you choose your family, not only can you uh, choose who you want to surround yourself with, but you can literally you know, build yourself um, to be whatever you, you want to be. Um, and I'm fascinated by that. Um, so far, it hasn't um, overlapped too much in my fiction. I, I don't have a good many stories that deal with, you know, being queer and with being Indo-Guyanese. But now it's something that's going to be on my mind because of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! My job here is done. So why don't you tell us where to find your work and yourself? Sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm terrible and I'm currently in the process of building a website. So I do not have a website yet, but if you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is just at Ian Munishwar, my full name, all lowercase. Um, and my work, let's see. So I have, um, a couple of stories I've mentioned already. I had fiction out this year in, uh, Gamut in the dark. 
Um, that's the Indo-Guyanese story. Um, I had a story in Liminal Stories and Podcastle. Um, you can also find me in uh, Clark's World and a couple of other venues from a few years back. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Ian. I really appreciate it. It was fascinating. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. Of course, anytime. And thank you listeners for joining us today on Signal Boost. Make sure that you go track down Ian's work. It'll be in the show note. Nice and easy for you. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Zinn E. Rocklin, a horror writer of Trinidadian descent, with stories published in the anthologies Forever Vacancy and Sycorax's Daughter. Welcome to the show, Zinn. Hi! So, my first question is always, so that our listeners get a feel for who you are and what you do, tell us about yourself and what you do. Well... I'm a writer, and I write primarily speculative fiction as the with the two anthologies that you mentioned. They're both horror stories. I primarily write in horror and sometimes some kind of hybrid of horror. So whether it's horrific fantasy, horrific science fiction, whatever you want to say, it's definitely a horror element to it. I have day jobs for now until I am of Stephen King black woman status. Yes. <laughs> For now, it's I, I do have a day job. I work on a, a school campus, which is actually pretty cool. But other than that, uh, it's just me writing a lot of reading. I do a ton of reading and usually making trouble on Twitter. <laughs> That's one of my favorite pastimes, personally. So I've read a couple of your stories, and one of the things I noticed is that you have kind of a combination, and you kind of skirt a line between the sacred and the profane. So I'm wondering, and this is going to be like a 10-part question, because that's how I work sometimes. Okay. <laughs> how do you work that into horror? Why do you work that into horror? Why horror? Why is that the genre that you feel best allows you to explore the things that you want to explore? Well, why horror? I would say, honestly, because of my upbringing, which is not to say it's traumatic. There was trauma involved, of course, but it's not traumatic. My parents, and there's a lot of folklore, honestly, around Trinidad and, and of the Caribbean that is basically warnings. It's basically Aesop's fables. To put it in a more, I guess, global sense, um, Aesop's Fables with a lot more blood and basically trying to traumatize you, for lack of a better word. One of the stories that always stuck with me is a story of the Dwen, which are children uh, that died before they could be baptized. And it was a warning story to keep you indoors when your mom and your dad told you to. Uh, if you were caught outside after your curfew, you would run into Dwen. They were small children, signified by large straw sun hats um, that usually cover their faces, which is a good thing because they usually don't. I think they, in some lore, they don't have eyes and they have very sharp teeth and they're usually naked and their feet are turned backward 
So these strange children will, you know, try to promise you a good time and come play with us. And then you follow them into the forest and you never return. Um, And I was told this as a very young kid, obviously, to keep me indoors. I mean, that would keep me indoors. Right? I am now an adult and I'm tempted to stay indoors all the time now. (laughs) And that's kind of, there was a thrill behind hearing these stories. It was always like, there's even, um, you know, little colloquialisms that, you know, my grandmother would say and that you can feel the history behind these colloquialisms. Of course, I can't think of any right now, but it was something that really struck really close to your heart and kind of gave you that thrill of that fear. And I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed giving myself that thrill of what's in the dark, but not necessarily always evil and not necessarily always malicious. Sometimes there's, I always thought of, I mean, there's the concept of the guardian angel versus the devil on your shoulder. But, you know, I always thought of the concept of when I'm walking home at night, alone at night, and I feel like I'm much bigger than I actually am because I feel like there is presence around me that that right there can be frightening to certain people. But to me, it's kind of comforting. I think there is comfort within horror. Um, and I think there is something that keeps things alive, that unknown keeps things alive. And, and it allows you to question the bigger picture. Um, so that's what always kind of attracted me to horror. It's my parents' fault completely and totally um (laughs) so my mom always wondered you know why why do you write horror i don't understand why are you watching all these movies and reading these books and she told me one of the most traumatic stories i'd ever heard which was um in trinidad she you know was walking with a group of other kids when she was you know maybe seven or eight years old And this young girl who was going to a different school than she went to was hit by a car in front of her. And just in case you need to put a content warning or anything, but this little girl was, she, she knows the name. She'd rattle off the name as soon as you ask her about it. But this girl was essentially split in half. But as she's dying, she's saying her final Hail Mary. That'll stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And she's like, why do you do this? And why? I'm like, you told me a real life horrifying story. And you wonder how I'm tra- like, why I'm channeling this. I don't know. Like, but yeah, I think even that image where this child has experienced something and is experiencing and has experienced something incredibly traumatic. She believes in something that's beyond our plane. And she's seeking that comfort through her horror. I think that's also why I'm attracted to horror is because there is that comfort beyond that particular moment. We all know that there's evil out there. We all know that there's terrible things out there. But there's something with the comfort beyond that that I enjoy. That's interesting because you basically just told me a horror story that had both the sacred and the profane in one moment. Right. And this is kind of what I noticed about razor fangs. Yeah. You're dealing with 
what should be a wonderful thing is a wonderful thing to a lot of people, which is pregnancy. And it often is told as a sacred sort of space, but it's in the midst of a horrifying thing and it's a desperate thing and you're, there's sex in there and it's not necessarily good sex. It's angry <laughs> sex. Right. All within this, this story. So could you tell me a little bit more about Razor Fangs and that juxtaposition? Actually, Razor Fangs is, is part of a larger work. Um, I thought I would put up like a little bit of a teaser, um, to that story. Uh, but I like, I think, like you mentioned, I do like that juxtaposition of the, of the profane and the sacred. And I think it's because of how, how hypocritical and impossible it is for that Puritan kind of ideology that a lot of American values were really founded on, which has permeated throughout, to be a little risque, um, that's permeated throughout religion, specifically, you know, Christianity and Catholic, Catholicism, because I can't say words. <laughs> that's okay. Um, but there's this, this expectancy to procreate for, to have sex for the, for, the sole purpose of procreation, but sex and intimacy are the most human things that we honestly really do, which hand in hand, again, there's the scientific part of it, which is very removed, which is procreate and create new life. And then at times the most alive people feel and most connected. Some people, some people feel is when they have sex. There are, I think there's something interesting to explore within that very base and rudimentary act of, of going for it. You know, like when there's, when you experience death, you're, you're, you gotta feel alive. So you're going for it. You know, when you're drunk and you're like, I want to feel good, you're going for it. Like it's this kind of, it's very rudimentary, but it ends up being such a big deal. And it ends up taking, it ends up taking over a lot of our perspective and a lot of our, our, um, our moves and our decisions, which aren't all good. I think that sex, because of the lack of education around sex and the lack of education of ourselves and our bodies, it ends up turning into something very, very ugly. It turns into abuses, it turns into addictions, it turns into losing oneself into this physical act. And I think with Razor Fangs, I was exploring, one, honestly, pregnancy is kind of horrifying. It totally is. <laughs> right? Like, I remember seeing my nephew while in my sister-in-law's womb, like him roll either his hand or his foot across her belly and I freaked out and we were we were driving to the mall and I freaked out and I started screaming and I was pointing out at her belly and I'm I was 16 17 years old at the time so <laughs> I had no excuse like no excuse to be having this reaction but uh freaked out pointing out the belly and my brother was like what is going on with you I was like do you see that what is happening she's like that is that's your nephew it's like no that is no I don't like that and I, 
you know, even now I'm fascinated. I think it's so strange because, again, there's a juxtaposition of the miracle of life and the softness of motherhood and blah, blah, blah. And then there's honestly this kind of cold and calculating look at pregnancy as well, where it's just like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. That's just your body. And it's like, wait, no, I'm literally making another human being. Like, this is a lot of, there's a lot going on in my body right now. And it's so strange to me how when you really think about these things, when you think about sex, when you think about pregnancy, when you think about kind of what is in some circles and some ways we can, can, sorry, considered minute, it's like, no, this is, this is a really big deal. This is really huge. And I think, there's also the unfortunate part of the judging when it comes to those who don't want to have children. Like for me, for instance, I I do not want to have children for a plethora of reasons, not because I'm just like, there's another human being in my belly, but there's a plethora of other reasons that uh, mo- that I have been told to my face from other women and other people, I don't want to just say women, that have told me that I'm being selfish and that I'm being immature because I decided that I don't want to have children. One of the worst reasons that I was apparently selfish was me not thinking about the other women who cannot have children, uh, who want to have children. And I was kind of baffled by the idea of me having children just because there were other women who couldn't do it. Never mind the emotional, mental, physical, and monetary labor that goes into having a child. I must have this child because other women can't. And I, and I really wanted to kind of explore that burden that's placed on the female of the species. I I guess I can put it in that. Yeah. They want to fuck when they're angry. They want to fuck when they're horny. They want to fuck when they just want to have that connection. But yet they are left with the consequences of those actions. So I have not read your story in Sycorax's Daughters, but can you kind of tell me how important that is as an anthology on its own and getting into it, what that meant to get into something like Sycorax's Daughters? For one, it's an incredible feeling, absolutely incredible feeling because for so long as a black woman who a black girl then black woman who's absolutely loved horror and love speculative fiction in general to see that come together to see so many names come together to show that yeah we have more than just a cursory interest we have a deep love for this genre that in a lot of ways over the years has never loved us back. It's incredible to come together with such a, an amazing group of writers to come together and such a, it's genuinely like, I'm not trying to brag here, but it's genuinely a very strong anthology. Every single story is such a meal within itself, such a rich meal within itself that You know, you have to take your time getting through it, and it's absolutely worth every word. And to be able to be a part of that, 
is my imposter syndrome flared up <laughs> like like you would not believe i was just like i don't i don't deserve this at all what am i doing here but at the same time it's also kind of been a long time coming it's been a long time coming for all of us and um i'm glad to be a part of it and and really excited to to pursue it and to to be to be associated with these great names awesome so why don't you tell us where we can find you and your work? As mentioned, I do have a story called Summer Skin in Sycorax's Daughters, which is available on Amazon and in some small retail bookstores. I also have a story called Need in Forever Vacancy, which is another anthology uh, dedicated to a motel that is more than what it seems. And I also post on, I have a WordPress website that is very bare and I do apologize, but it, it is Zin Rockland, Z-I-N Rockland.wordpress.com. And also on Oblique 3030 WordPress as well. And you can always hit me up and find me on Twitter at, at Intelligent Twat. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> so many people have been like, so what's your Twitter? I'm like, you know my Twitter. Stop asking me. Just say it. Just say it. It's just one T. So it's intelligent and what? Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Terry. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. And thank you listeners for listening in today as I talked to Zen to make sure that you go for one thing, go buy Sycorax's Daughter and check out Zen's work. Bye-bye! listening to the show if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us at skiffy and at gmail.com on twitter at skiffy and on facebook at the skiffy and show and on patreon at patreon.com slash our intro and outro music comes from the launch by chronux you can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org